Hello and welcome to the Chasing Faith podcast. This is going to become a place for us to discuss issues of faith in a way that leads us towards a more authentic, open, honest, and generous expression of what we truly believe. I'm Brandon Batson. I'm the producer of this podcast and the Communications and Connections Director here at Christ Church in New York City. I'm here with your host, the Reverend Dr. Stephen Bauman, the senior minister here at Christ Church. Each week, our podcast will begin with Steve giving a short talk on whatever subject we might be covering that week, followed by a discussion between the two of us and guests of the podcast. So it is my very great pleasure to introduce you to Bishop Thomas Bickerton, who is the Bishop of the New York Annual Conference of the United Methodist Church. He came to us a well-seasoned bishop back in 2016. Uh, I can speak personally and professionally to say that I have high regard for Bishop Bickerton. He's, he's done an exceptionally fine job, particularly under the difficult circumstances we find ourselves in, in New York and in the New York Annual Conference. And I thought it would be good to introduce you to Bishop Bickerton and, and then engage Tom in a conversation about how he came into the work that he's he's doing and um, learn more about that and the extent of that, but then engage a conversation about the state of the church as well. And uh, Brandon and I are pleased to be in this conversation together. So thanks so much, Bishop Bickerton, for your presence here on this podcast of Chasing Faith. Thanks, Steve. Thanks, Brandon. Good, good to be with you guys. So maybe the place to begin, Tom, is what I ask almost all of our guests is to give us a little background. Um, you know, who are you? Where'd you come from? <laughs> how did you how did you wind up uh, in this business and all of that? God, that's an interesting thing to ponder. You know, I've been a part of the church. I finally say I've been a part of the church since I was three days old. I grew up in a Methodist family where Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, uh, was the standard. You were in church. So when I was three days old, Jim and Marlene took their new son to church, and I've been there ever since. <laughs> this was West Virginia? This was back in West Virginia. I grew right. up along the Ohio River um, in a uh, glass worker, uh, glass worker's family along the Ohio River with steel mills, power plants, and glass factories. So I, I grew up in a blue-collar family, very basic. I'm the first person in my whole family to go to college. Uh, so I grew up with very common roots uh, in Appalachia, which has its own distinct uh, descriptors. Um, but church was a big part of our life together. And so, uh, you know, the people around me, family, friends, parishioners, they all accepted my call to ministry before I ever dreamed that there was one. I mean, I, I feel like I was pointed toward ministry by them from the beginning. So that when I accepted my call to ministry in 1977, it was no big surprise. My, my grandmother stood up at the Thanksgiving table in, in 1977 when I said, I think I'm going into ministry. And, and she shouted and said, thank, thank you, Lord. He's finally come to his senses. And how old were um, you then? Uh, I was 19. Wow. Yeah. That's an early call. Yeah, it was. And, uh, so it's been a part of my life uh, from the beginning. I thought I was going to be an optometrist uh, early on, but um, 
I had a bishop in my life, Fred Wirtz. Uh, I was president of the conference youth at one point who called me in his office and said, what are you going to do with your life? And I said, I'm going to be an optometrist. And he said, bad mistake. <laughs> and I said, what do you mean about that? And he said, uh, you know, God has something more in mind for you. And, uh, and that's ministry. And, uh, and he was bold enough to say that at some point, uh, you'll probably sit in a chair just like that one, pointing over to his chair. And when I was elected bishop in 2004, he was in a nursing home and um, Bishop Ives and I went to visit him on the way to a bishop's orientation meeting. And I walked in the nursing home and Fred Wirtz stood up and feebly walked over to me, hugged my neck and whispered in my ear, I told you so. <laughs> he, hadn't, he hadn't forgotten about that. So my journey's been intertwined with the church my whole life. Yeah. Hmm. What's interesting about that from my vantage point is that I came into the ministry not that way. I uh, stumbled into God in college. I mean, I grew up in the church, sort of, but my family moved around a lot, so I didn't have a hometown. Yeah. And um, when I woke up to the idea that maybe I should get ordained, I had to choose a denomination. I had to find my way in that. So it was a yeah. different. Yeah. But I think yours is a, a, a more, well, maybe I'll your call is uncommon in some ways, but in a way, it's a it's a more common uh, deal that people grow up in the church. They're steeped. They are nurtured. So I've heard you talk before about how well nurtured you were by the church and how it was a very natural outcome for you. Yeah, it's exactly right. I you know, in in a mystical kind of way, Steve, I've always felt the hand of God on my shoulders. And I've, you know, I'm very much in tune with the reality that there's no self-made person in the world. So what I what I have, I'm keenly aware that I'm a, I'm a benefactor of. I, I was nurtured on the back porch of 110 Poplar Avenue, my grandfather and grandmother's house, uh, sitting on the glider. He was he taught me more about faith than uh, than any seminary class ever did. Um, mm. And it's it's something that still moves me today at 62 still moves me greatly today is that I, I, I realize that I didn't generate the things that I have. I'm just a benefactor of them and I'm deeply grateful for that. Uh, I, you know, I wake up as naive as it may sound. I wake up every morning and my first words are, God, I can't wait for the adventure that you've got in store for me today. I, I'm, I'm very keenly aware of the role that I play, uh, the life I've been given, and I live a life that's filled with a great deal of gratitude. Yeah, I think that you exude that um, quality about uh, looking forward, looking into the day as an adventure that's been given to you. I, I sense that in, in your countenance, and that's a gift. That's a gift to the church as well. Um, it's been challenging these days, as oh, you well know. I think, yeah. I think everyone's faith is being taxed and torn and pulled and pushed in this uh, season that we're in. And uh, it is very much an endurance test to be able to see the adventure uh, in the midst of the grim realities. Yeah. It might be, for the sake of our listeners, useful to say a little bit about the context of the United Methodist Church, because uh, I think a bunch of our listeners are not terribly up to speed on that, just to give a little bit of the lay of the land. Um so you are the bishop of an annual conference, which is a ge geography 
that includes New York City, Long Island, two-thirds of Connecticut, the Hudson Valley west to the Pennsylvania border, roughly. It's an interesting ganglion of a conference. And uh, the United States has, how many conferences are there actually? Uh, well, worldwide, there are 66 bishops that oversee, 66 bishops. Yeah, that oversee the 12 million okay. United Methodists. Currently in the U.S., there are 47 bishops that oversee the United States. Right. Uh, so it, we're in Africa, Europe, the Philippines, and the United States. And um, each of those bishops oversee certain geographical areas um, with with common polity, common theology, common rubric. Right. Before we get into the uh, state of the church, or as we begin that conversation, it might be kind of interesting for our listeners to learn about what does a bishop do? What are they doing? What do they do? And and how does does it differ from what a pastor does? Uh, can you say a word about that? Sure. You know, I think our book of discipline is pretty clear about the role and function of a bishop. And our job is to is a keeper of the faith, a, a shepherd of the flock, an overseer of uh, a body of franchises, if you will, where that theology and rubric is lived out on a weekly basis. So it's it's very pastoral in nature, although it does have administrative and oversight responsibilities attached to it. And one of the temptations of a bishop is to tip the scale one way or the other, to become more pastoral than you should or more administrative as you, than you should. It's a balancing act. Um, and so, you know, again, in these days, especially in relationship to COVID, you know, I'm putting on my pastoral hat more times than not in dealing with congregations that are struggling to find their way one Sunday to the next. Um, I, I have six district superintendents that help me oversee the New York area. And so they too provide both administrative and pastoral functions. We're kind of pastors to the pastors um, and making sure that our churches are well-ordered and well-structured according to our polity. Um, so it's, you know, it is a, it's very much like a pastor's role uh, it's just overseeing uh, those. Uh, I have 421 churches under my care, um, an equal number of pastors. And um, my main responsibility is to appoint those pastors to their assignments uh, and then equip them and empower them to live out their life and ministry uh, in relationship to their own callings, but in accordance with who we are as United Methodists. Right. Um Given that you were elected in, first elected in 2002? Four. So you've been a bishop for 18 years. Uh, you were, in the scheme of things, you were relatively young to have been elected a bishop at the time you were. That's accurate, correct? That is. I was the youngest bishop in Methodism when I was elected. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and um, what's intriguing about that is it would almost seem as though from Bishop Wurtz's point of view, you were in a sense called to be Bishop right from the beginning. It's kind of the way you tell your story almost. And I, uh, and that seems, feels pretty straightforward, but I'm curious how you, how you feel about the role of Bishop versus when you were a pastor. 
of a local congregation? That's a great question. And, and you know, I, I, I have to be pretty careful in how I answer that first part of your statement because I, I, have, I have felt a sense of calling to this for a very, very long time. And again, that's not something that I feel that I generated personally. I think it was something just planted there that people began to nurture. I, I was uh, I was 38 years old when I was nominated for bishop the first time. And so that's been a part of my existence uh, for a long, long time. And it's greatly humbling to me uh, to, to think about that. Um, you know, the... the the second part of your question is um, uh, it, I always have a pastor's heart um, and I always will. I pray that I always will. Um, I, I, the role is to be a spiritual leader uh, ultimately in my viewpoint. Uh, so I, I not only have to make the tough decisions about where a pastor's appointed or the tough decision in COVID days about whether or not to close all of our congregations down. Um, you know, I'm a, I'm a keeper of the faith and, um, which means I have to keep myself spiritually centered and whole. Uh, I've got to keep my discipline strong. Um, I've got to keep my focus on, uh, on the big picture. Um, and it's a pretty humbling role to have that, uh, on your shoulders all the time. Uh, but it's one that I that I've never felt burdened by. Um, it's 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 been a natural part of of who I am, and I and I I, I take that um, I, I take that naturally, and I take it uh, with great care. Um, I, I I want to be um, a keeper of the faith, and I know that it has to be done individually if I'm ever going to do that corporately. Yeah, hmm. you know I. The role, and even the way you speak of it now, in this way can be similar to, say, the role of any for any leader in a church. Um, but there is a dance, isn't there, between ego, ego fulfillment, um, desire to be known to be successful and capable and competent, and while holding the reins of a gospel of humble love. It's a, it's a, it's a daunting challenge. I almost don't think we talk about this enough as clergy, because I think it's, there's a dance here that often gets neglected. And, and I, what, what do you think, how do you, what do you think about that? Does that, does that ring true to you as well? Man, there's a bunch of branches on that tree. <laughs> and, and, you know, we could talk all day about them, yeah. especially in the current context. Yes. I mean, our, our polity is is one where there is a hierarchy. And, you know, people oftentimes who don't know much about Methodism say, who's your boss? Yeah. And, and my answer is God. You know, I don't have a, I, I, I answer to a committee on the episcopacy, uh, but I, I'm really my own, uh, my own, Boss at that point, and that that tempts one to get into the ego game. I mm -hmm. am bishop, kind of thing, yeah. and that's been, you know, that's in certain contexts that's still operative uh, for some bishops, and um, it's it's a temptation, uh, it's a power grab, 
Um, and it is allowed in some extent based on our polity. But in the current context where there's a real move toward uh, flattening of leadership, um, the question about uh, what are you as a leader willing to give, give away in your leadership, um, that's a relevant conversation, especially in relationship to uh, dismantling racism conversations that we're having. Um, what are you willing to, uh, to allow other people to lead in? Um, I, it's a very real conversation, and it is quite a balancing act because the, the polity of the church isn't going to go away anytime soon. So if there's going to be adaptations to leadership on this level, it really is dependent upon the individual to initiate that. And the, I think the only way to initiate it is out of a healthy ego strength, uh, that, that you're not threatened by it, but you do see that we're in a day and a time where trust levels are very low. Uh, there's skepticism of anyone in leadership and how you enable others to uh, embrace and believe you when you say that you really do want to uh, collaborate, that you want to walk alongside, that you want to share leadership. Um, that's, that's tough work because people always default to you're the bishop, you're responsible for appointments of us if we're clergy. Um, you know, so the default is always to the bishop. Right. It's very it's difficult work for the bishop to say, I am going to dismantle some of this work uh, because it is far more collaborative in nature if we're going to be effective in the 21st century. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You know, my arena, of course, isn't as broad as yours, but the same issues exist. Um, and I think they exist for anyone who is exerting leadership in any corner of the church. Um, and as I've gotten older, um, I've become conscious that part of the work is to do precisely the work you're, you're pointing to here, which is um, opening up our arms, our minds, our hearts, descending the ladder, stepping off any pedestal that might crop up under our feet, and join the hands with those with whom we are co-working and forge a future that is smarter than any one of us could possibly bring to bear. So right. I, I, I applaud your attempt at doing that as well in, in the arena. You, are, I'm kind of curious, do the bishops have this conversation, this level of transparency in their conversations or in their work when they're together? Yeah, I think we're having more and more of those conversations because the you know, these are pretty humbling days. And, um, and if you're not willing to have the conversation, you can bet that the conversation is going to come your way. So will you, will you prepare yourself for the conversation or will you get hit broadside by it? And so uh, we just finished council bishops meeting two weeks ago and we had, uh, Susan Beaumont, um, uh, an author and, and facilitator from the Presbyterian church walk us through, uh, her latest book, which is uh, Leading When You Don't Know Where You're Going. <laughs> and, uh, and she talks a great deal about the liminal time that we're in. Yes. And that liminal space is unpredictable. It is, um, it's one that's very perilous for existing systems and structures. 
It's one where you, you've got to give it your best guess. But one of the key components of that is how you lead in the midst of it. And leadership in the midst of it is really, a. I think it requires you to, to become more vulnerable than you normally might be, more transparent than you might be tempted to be, um, and more collaborative. Uh, because we are all giving it our best shot to try to figure this out. And no one is a repository of the answers right. uh, because we're walking into a season where the convergence of all that we're facing has never been, never happened before. Uh, so there's nothing from history to draw on. And so, uh, gosh, we better go hand in hand. Um, and that will, that will, I think, um, that will reveal what true leadership is in this period of time, if we're willing to do that. Hierarchical leadership won't cut it in this day and time. Yeah. yeah. Well, I, I think that's interesting direction to kind of go. It's, you know, this era of COVID, I think has been a very exposing to a lot of different structures, church and otherwise, right? Um, where are our weaknesses and, you know, that sort of thing. And I, I wondered, like, as you've, you know, been processing during this time, what do you think this COVID era has exposed about the future and mission of the church? You know, I, I'm a glass half full guy, Brandon, and yeah. I've been tempted. That glass has had some cracks in it and holes in it in the last seven <laughs> months. It's been a difficult period of time for anybody, emotionally, physically, spiritually. Um, so, but from a glass half full perspective, um, I, I, I do, my theology does not say that God imposed this on us. My right, theology right. does say that by faith, similar to the, the verses from Hebrews chapter 11, by faith, people who don't know where they're going do find their way. Right. Uh, and it, it, is, uh, it is a matter of, of uh, a faithful posture of seizing the opportunities that you have in order to sense where God's calling you to be. Classic illustration, Moses leads the people across the Red Sea into the desert. They get to the verge of the promised land. They've demonstrated unfaithfulness, stammering along the way. God says, go into the promised land. What do they do? They send spies ahead of time. The spies come back and say, oh, we can't go in there. There's giants in the land. And God, in effect, says, okay, you don't trust me. Why don't you wander in the wilderness for 40 years and try to figure it out? Um, and there's a point where you've got to, by faith, say, okay, we're going to cross the water and we're going to go into uncharted territory and we're going to, we're going to have faith to be able to do that. We're in a very similar period of time. Uh, there's a lot of wilderness wanderings going on. I, I, I believe that the current situation that we're facing is providing us with an opportunity to cross over into a new realm of what it means to be church. And the confession may very well be that we have propped up a dying system for decades, mm. that, we, that we have been far more as leaders oriented toward maintaining what we currently have than visioning out what God's really calling us to be. So in the New York context, is God calling us to have 421 franchises 
75 to 80% of which may not have a life in the next five to 10 years? Or is God calling us to get entrepreneurial in terms of what church looks like? We have, Steve and I, have we have participated in leading congregations where the principal, um, the principal uh, action of that congregation happens at a designated hour with a large group gathering in one place. COVID has stopped that. Hmm. Will will are we on the verge of a new norm for what church looks like? Or will we hold on to the fact that, oh, gosh, we've got to, we've got to get all of our people back together in one sanctuary again? Um, I think we're being pressed into new models. And I think our survival and our thrival is very much dependent <laughs> on how we make transitions in the midst of chaotic times. We're yeah. in the midst of one of the biggest chaotic times we can describe in our lifetimes. Um, are we being called to, what are we being called to preserve and what are we being called to abandon in light of a new expression of what church really should be? That's enlivening to me. It's also terrifying. Of course. Uh, I'm 62 years old. I like the way things have been. I, I hate to admit that <laughs> if I still had a VCR, I may be getting close to the category of not being able to set the time on the VCR. <laughs> um, you know, I, I, I get it. I, I, I like, I like things the way they are. Um, you know, I, I'm, I'm, an, I'm enamored by self-driving vehicles right? and electric vehicles. But I would bet that if in my lifetime, there's a self-driving vehicle, I will still want to drive it. I'll we should probably it. tell people what you'd like to drive best. What I'd like to drive. Best? No, what you currently like to drive best. Don't you have a? Don't you have a nice, fun little car? I got a fun little convertible that I That's like. <laughs> Why don't you tell our <laughs> listeners what you like to drive? I like to drive a 2010 red Mustang with the top. There you go. Okay. I just didn't want to let the opportunity pass to let you slip that in. You just exposed me. There you go. Transparent as a leader. Yeah. You know, I hope you get what I'm saying is that I, you know, I think, do we hold on to the wheel or do we let go of it and see what happens? And, yeah. and I think COVID has forced us into something that we probably should have been doing for years, but we just were lulled to sleep by the monotony of maintaining what we currently have. Tom, do you think that this mindset is... Um, becoming more fully formed within the other bishops or within the church, broader church? Or do you think you feel still a lot of resistance to what you're talking about? Uh, it depends on the depends on who you're talking to. Uh, I think holistically, Steve, we're in a stutter step at this yeah. point. Yeah. I think we know, we know what we need to do, but we're stutter stepping our way into it. Um, and I think in our subconscious, we just want things to go back to the way they were before. Yeah. And, and I, th I think that's just totally honest. I, 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 yeah. I think we just want to go back, but we know we can't. And it's terrifying because we don't know really how to move forward. And, you know, bishops tend to be the kind of people that want to do everybody's work. We, we you know, we, we want to get into everybody's <laughs> lane. We want to solve everybody's problems. And uh, so it's difficult for us when we don't have clear pathways. 
um, and mm. that we find ourselves in the company of everybody else who is trying to figure out how do we best lead in the midst of these very uncertain days. So uh, we're a work in progress very much. Right. And, okay, so COVID is certainly up in front, staring us right down. Also, the matters of race and racism. Um, and I know the church is making some attempts at uh, addressing this, um, but that's going to be crushing in on us as well, right? I mean, that's kind of a, another crisis that's confronting us as a church and, and including our history as a church. Um, what are some thoughts or experiences you have in that realm? And I realize that we're a little limited by having a conversation among three white men, right. although of different generations. <laughs> but let's name that and then let's have the conversation. Sure, sure. Well, I think, you know, there are parallels in, in much of what we've talked about the last five minutes. Um, and, and that relates to, uh, you know, one of the books that I've been leaning on quite a bit is Robert Jones's book, White Too Long, mm -hmm. uh, and really would commend it to anyone. But it really is a, a glaring commentary on how whiteness is so ingrained into everything that we do, not just white folks, it's ingrained in right. the, into the culture so much that it's it's formidable to think about getting out of that and you know are how willing are we especially those of us that are white how willing are we um to empower the marginalized how willing are we to uh, dismantle the systems that have given us great privilege um how willing are we uh to be led rather than lead because our leadership will always be out of a white model. Um, we serve a church that has benefited white people greatly. When you study, we've done a very deep analysis in the New York Annual Conference uh, relative to institutional racism. Um, where are the places where we've invested our money? Where are the places we've hired staff people? Um, what's the manner by which we've made appointments? You know, how do you reconcile uh, a congregation in a disproportionately affected region of New York that pays a salary, pays a pastor a minimum salary, uh, and you have a church of similar size and stature in an affluent part of Connecticut that pays $100,000 a year? Um, from, for the sake of the mission of the church, how do we begin to provide a sense of equity, um, and how do we give voice uh, to those who really should be leading us, how willing are we to be able to do that? And it, what it requires is the very same thing that we've been talking about, a dismantling of norms and procedures uh, that we leaned on for a sense of comfort. Um, you know, when, when I'm engaged in any number of anti-racism conversations, it, it will come out inevitably um, that this will be painful for some of you. <laughs> and it should be because it's an acknowledgement of what I, I think it's basic language, but it's an acknowledgement of sinful behavior that we have uh, allowed to become a part of the fabric of who we are. 
and to get rid of that is formidable. I think from a very basic standpoint, those of us in leadership have got to be committed to keeping that on the front page. You know, as a communicator, um, and I've done a lot of work in communications, one of the one of the real challenges in the communications business is how long can you keep a story on the front page before it is replaced by another story? When it comes to the issue of race, the temptation to get that thing off of the front page quickly is a norm, especially for those of us of white privilege. We want it off the front page. So we in leadership have to be committed to keeping it on the front page. Um, we, especially white leaders, have got to be committed to carrying the banner. Um, it's not, Carrying the banner does not mean leading the effort. It does mean keeping it in front of us, yeah. putting together the right <clears throat> who can and should lead the effort. Yeah. Mm. You know, I we haven't talked yet about a third topic that would be relevant, which has to do with our partisanship um, and politics and church and how that's worked out in our century right now. Yeah. But I'm, I'm very aware that historically, uh, when I was growing up in church, and I would hear with some regularity in disparate corners of the church community that we should keep politics out of church. And I, it, it came to my mind when I was a teenager, it, it dawned on me that that was really about racism, that that, because the black church was all over politics. And if you were talking to uh, African-Americans, they would say it's a matter of life and death that we talk about it because it has practical, uh, important ramifications in how our lives are structured and our very lives may be dependent upon it. And so the black church became a champion of civil rights reform. So I became aware when I was a teenager that the no politics in church was really kind of an implicit, although, and perhaps not even entirely conscious code for keeping race out of the mix of what is allowable within the life of the congregation. Does that ring a bell for you as well? Oh, gosh, yeah. I, you know, and you look at the current climate. I mean, you know, you have folks that are wanting to preserve um, a certain political position because it has afforded them great privilege. Yes. And that's what's given rise to all of the all of the outbursts from the from the conservative right. Um, how how the conservative evangelical church has aligned itself with a a, a, a right wing leader, even when their principles are compromised by the behavior of that president is a is a key illustration of preservationist uh, mentalities uh, that will do anything to preserve our way of life. And, uh, you know, I, there's so many extremes these days. I mean, you've got the extreme of um, the, the kind of Pollyanna extreme that uh, religion is all about spirituality. Yep. And then you've got the other extreme that religion is all about social action. Um, and I think the, 
you know, the, the black church has modeled for us a very wonderful model of deep spirituality with social activism. Uh, that our that our embracing of the gospel leads us into the world, and uh, it leads us into justice. Um, but when you're privileged, you don't have to worry about justice so much. So you're tempted not even to focus on it. So I think, <laughs> yeah, again, it's it's allowing ourselves to be led by a model that has been very, very well embodied by the Black Church in America over the years. They've woven. Yeah spirituality with social action uh, very effectively. And, uh, you know, I think we, we need to get on the train, man. Yeah, yeah. It strikes me that in this COVID moment, um, there's been a great stripping away of uh, decades of accretion, a great stripping away, a getting down to the essence of what does it mean to be a follower after the way of Jesus? What does that look like now in the 21st century? And to your earlier point, to um, step out of the old costume we've been wearing into some brand new, something brand new. And it's going to be, that's going to be difficult, awkward, and it's, we're going to suffer some moving into that kind of a future, I suspect. Yeah, and I think there's a, there's a need for us to get pretty serious on all fronts. I mean, I don't know how you can be uh, uh, effective in your social activism if you don't weave in the gospel. Uh, mm -hmm. to, Jesus took time to pray. Uh, yes, I preached on Esther at the ordination service on Sunday. The first thing that Esther did when she was confronted with saving the Jews was to mobilize people to fast and pray. Uh, you know, uh, you know, we've we've all grown up with this uh, meek and mild Jesus kind of concept, um, and I don't want to throw that Jesus out the door because it's very important. Um, but if it's only about that. Then you then you've not embraced the gospel as it's presented because Jesus is confrontational. Um, he is unafraid to confront systems and structures that are oppressive. Um, there is a, a deep justice component to the work as you study that, which is to say that if we're going to engage this thing properly, one of the one of the handicaps I believe we have today is that we're rather biblically illiterate. Hmm. We're theologically inarticulate. We don't connect the dots between what we say and what we do. And I think that's, again, um, the need for leaders to really begin to help uh, present um, the, the biblical mandate and message in a holistic fashion. We've got to become theologians again. We've got to become proclaimers again, and we've got to do it uh, holistically rather than this temptation that we all have at times to pick a verse out of nowhere and use it to our benefit. How do we look at our theology? And as United Methodists, I, I'm a United Methodist for a reason. Uh, it is a wonderful blend of social principles with biblical foundations. Uh, that's at the heart of John Wesley from the beginning of trying to yes. bring justice to the coal miners who were being oppressed in England. Um, yep. The same concepts apply to us today. 
but we've we have been pretty slack in terms of how we preach, teach, and lead from that holistic vantage point. Right. I couldn't agree more with that. That is, a, as a matter of fact, why I chose the United Methodist Church was that Wesleyan, um, well, for lack of a better word, methodology of doing theology, which is the blend that you just mentioned. Um, that, and that seems especially ripe for our particular moment in time as well as church. Uh, it's interesting to me. It sounds brand spanking new in some ways, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, I think that's the thing is that we had this, this convergence uh, of COVID uh, in our denomination, the potential inevitability of separation, um, the, the issue of, of racial injustice, uh, the political climate, all the things you've mentioned, the convergence of that, the church has had to deal with those things individually at certain points in its history. I know of no point in our history where they've all converged at the same time. Right. It does cause us to be unique, I think, in our leadership. However, um, we tend to not look in the rearview mirror very often when it comes to, uh, we think that we're in a unique period of time when in fact there are uh, four forefathers and foremothers before us who really did navigate through some pretty critical times that we can glean from. You don't have to always reinvent the wheel. Right. Wesley is one of those marker points. I think there's a lot to be gleaned from uh, life in Wesley's England. You know, Tom, I also think that leading institutional franchises, as you referred to them earlier, uh, in a manner that is expressive of the kind of theology we've been talking about is also a great challenge. I'm a part of a, a group of Methodist pastors from historic and larger churches. That's a, it's a self, it's a support group. And um, not long ago, we were having a, a Zoom meet and we were talking about the current political moment, but also talking specifically about the race, matters of race. And uh, one, of, one of my colleagues who has a large church um, somewhere else um, said his congregation is very, very dramatically split in a partisan way. Um, so, so a person in his role has perhaps at this stage a different problem than I have when I step into a pulpit or when I say I need to be preaching what the gospel professes. So I don't want to second guess that, uh, although I did, I have from time to time challenged my friends along those lines. So like at some point, they, they are owed what you think. That is to say, you don't have to cram it down their throats, I don't think. But at some point, I think our congregations are owed what we actually think about the important matters of our day. But in any case, um, this is a very capable, competent uh, pastor. But he said to me at one point, um, or not just to me, but to our group, he said, well, just that week, um, he got a letter from an anonymous person who said, reported that he had seen, I don't know if it was a he or she, so I'll say they, they had seen his wife and daughter at a Black Lives Matter event. 
we are watching you. So professing the gospel in that context becomes uh, a rather challenging matter. And then you couple that into what are my obligations to the institution, to the fact that I've got to meet the budget at the year end? And how do these things... Uh, how do these things interweave those those complexities? But I think we're entering a phase where we're not going to have th the uh, luxury of being too nuanced about this. Does that sound right to you? I think you're absolutely right. And it's a fundamental choice that every leader has to make is, right. you know, to what extent are you willing to, to risk your even your own life for that which you're called to do? I was on a Zoom call a couple of weeks ago with a, a colleague bishop from Africa who uh, in a very tender moment said, I, I today am fearful for my life uh, wow. because of the political tensions uh, that exist on the continent. And, you know, the, the, the issues related to whether or not and to what degree will the church stay together. This bishop had taken a stand and has become very unpopular because of it. And I have traveled enough in Africa to know that when he said those words, he meant them. He's afraid mm. for his life. Yes. Um, and, you know, if you're in certain parts of the United States and you you have a posture of uh, social activism or, or social justice, uh, and you are daring enough to proclaim that from a pulpit, you, you risk your family at that point. Um, yes. And I think we all, we all, I mean, I think the political tensions today between uh, the reluctance of someone to admit that another person is going to assume the Oval Office in a few weeks uh, is only stirring up that partisanship even more. Yes. To the point that even in neighborhoods here in New York, um, you've got You've got red versus blue. You got family pitted against family. Um, and, and what is the unifier? It's leadership. Um, are we willing to lead our people through that? And and that becomes even more challenging because I find today that words like uh, unity, uh, for the sake of the whole, civility, those are words that are not very popular. Trust, yeah. those are words that are not very popular. Uh, so to have a civil conversation, uh, if for some, is is uh, suggesting that you're not really dealing with the issues. Right. And I think it's very complex, but I, I think from my vantage point as a bishop, it's extremely important for me and, and the group that I work with to be able to provide the kind of support for a pastor when a pastor does need to be on the front line. Yeah. And no, I think that's crucial. I, I you know, you gotta, you, you, we can't, we're, none of us are solo operators. We've got to know that there's someone behind us supporting us when we take a step out. Yeah. And, um, and that's becoming even more real for me these days. Yeah. You were intimating a bit about whether the church would, hang together. And I think we should probably touch that subject. I know our listeners would be interested in knowing what, how you're reading the future of the denomination in regards to our likely schism up ahead around, especially LGBTQIA uh, matters. 
can you comment on that, Tom? Yeah, there's a lot of branches on that tree too. Yeah, I know. <laughs> you know, I, I think one of the things that this COVID time, you know, as Methodists, we know that our general conference has been postponed due to COVID. Uh, that's the big decision-making body of the United Methodist Church. It's not currently meeting. There's a lot of debate about when and how that meeting will take place. That's where the big decision about separation is going to happen. But I find it really interesting that um, in the COVID day that we're in, a lot of those decisions are just kind of already happening. Um, you know, As one, in the great stripping away I was referencing yeah, earlier, right? No, I mean, I, I, I think that uh, we've had no choice but to become local and regionalized, which is a big conversation. Will the church become regionalized? Well, I would argue the church is already becoming regionalized. Right. Um, we have a we have a, a, a norm of practices here in the New York Annual Conference that wouldn't play well in Mississippi, and uh, Mississippi politics wouldn't play well in New York. We're living into our context here. Yes, uh, which means that we are working. Uh, we're working overtime to become to be a fully inclusive annual conference on right. all on all levels, and in fact, we're doing that. Um, and we're not waiting for permission. We're doing that. Right. Um, I, I think that's that's the way the church is going to be going. But I find it interesting that we've been dependent upon a general conference to do something that I find that we're already doing in our conference. Mm. Um, and I celebrate that. Uh, maybe we're teaching ourselves something. Uh, you know, I think this is a denomination that has really uh, had a hard time differentiating between um, the the uniformity of our theology that's necessary, but the uniqueness of the context out of which that theology is lived um, is a mandatory. So it's it, while it's a uniform theology, its expression has a lot of different uh, nuances to it. And so um, I, I think if we're going to survive as a denomination, we just need to embrace that. The other piece, I think, Steve, is that um, we're, we're not having to wait until general conference to have churches leave this denomination. They're already leaving. Yeah. Uh, it's already happening. Uh, so there, there are folks waiting for the big body to make a decision. But there are other congregations and bodies that are already making that decision, which is to say, you know, my posture here in New York is to say to folks that want to leave, can we please have a conversation about that? Not a punitive one, not a threatening one, but one that says, how can we help one another succeed? Um, why would we want to hold on to churches and people that don't want to be a part of us? That only creates animosity and chaos. Um, the gospel is going to have um, multitudes of expressions. Um, and why we try to put it all into one box and you have to do it one way has always been confusing to me. This, this day and time in which we're in is just allowing this to happen. And I'm, I'm grateful for it because I, I, you know, I, I don't agree with some churches or people's theologies and they're Methodist. Right. And they don't agree with mine. Right. Not to say that I'm right and they're wrong or vice versa. It's to say, how do we celebrate the fact that there are different expressions and give uh, give voice to that? So um, 
I don't make any compromises about who we're trying to be here in New York, but I don't want to cast aspersions on those that feel like they have to live it out in a different way. Let's, let's get on with it. Has the, has the date been finalized yet or the methodology, or even if there is in fact going to be a meeting next year? No, it's very much in the, that's a very real time conversation. Will it be in person? Will it be hybrid? Will it be virtual or will it be further postponed? And, you know, trying to do scenario planning around all of those. I think, you know, uh, one of, we, we want, we want this thing to be over as quick as possible, namely COVID. So, you know, this week, I think uh, the public is drinking the Kool-Aid on all of the rhetoric about the vaccination. Um, so there is a vaccine coming, but, but uh, will that vaccine be globally distributed so that delegates from across the world can come to one place next August? I sure don't think so. I don't either. Um, but there are people who are thinking that because CNN is reporting that Pfizer has a breakthrough in a vaccine, that everyone's going to get inoculated by the end of January and this thing's all going to be over the first week of February. That's certainly not true either. Not going to be true. Right. Uh, so it's still a very much an endurance test. And so I think in leadership around the general conference, there's a lot of that uh, naivete going at work too, that surely to goodness by next August, we'll be able to be together. I'm not convinced of that. Right. So just for the sake of our listeners, to be clear that the general conference is the largest decision-making body in the, in uh, Methodism. Correct. And <clears throat> excuse me. Um, it is that body and that body's decision-making that would ultimately lead to a formal schism. But, but you are also saying Tom, that uh, in the meantime, local decisions and regional decisions are being already being made by, by churches as well as regional bodies. And you've already indicated that the New York Annual Conference is moving in the direction pretty quickly to a fully uh, reconciling conference, regardless of whatever else comes down the pike. I just wanted to make that clear to our listeners because yeah, they might be well put, Steve. I think that's that's accurate, and and I think what we're discovering, and I may this may be totally naive on my part, uh, but but I think what we're discovering is um, we're doing pretty well with all of that. Uh, you know, that, that we're living into life together pretty well with that. Um, and uh, I think if people would just uh, breathe a little bit and allow the spirit to move, we might be better off than if we try to manipulate everything. I hear you. <laughs> um, Brandon, is there anything on your mind? Uh, I think we're kind of coming up on our on our end time, but uh, was there a, something on your mind that you, that's been left out? Um, no, I think we, we touched a lot of it. I mean, I, I just appreciate your um, willingness to, to be a part of this and to speak candidly about all of these issues that we're all dealing with in real time. You know, I think um, that was, that was the thing that I was the most interested in. It's like, what, you know, what do you see, this time communicating to us. And I think you were clear about that. We didn't get into it, but the, the whole uh, uh, difference in generations and how the generations are interpreting church today is an interesting conversation. And maybe on another occasion, we can have that. We can uh, talk about that. A great conversation. Yeah, it is. It is. 
And it, it, it does speak to that flattening of leadership again. How yeah. how doing our you know, when Methodism was in its in its heyday, it was being this revolution called Methodism was being led by people under thirty five. Yeah. Mm-hmm. A circuit rider didn't you weren't riding a horse on the circuit when you were forty years old. <laughs> probably in the grave because you'd been working so hard prior to that. Yeah. The yeah. church is the church in its greatest days of growth were led by the by younger people, and now uh, we older folks are holding on for dear life to try to lead it. And, <laughs> uh, you know, I think there's a lot to learn there uh, yeah. about what what new expressions of church really need to look like that are relevant and meaningful for the upcoming generations. Yeah, uh, I couldn't. Our reluctance to do that's our demise. Yeah, I agree. Well, um, this has been a great conversation. I I will echo Brandon's comments. Great, grateful for your transparency and candor. I think that is so helpful for the church in general to have its leadership be not holding all of the answers, but certainly holding a passel of questions, speaking frankly about how they're situated in the midst of them. Uh, you model that extremely well, and I'm grateful for that. Um, and I look forward to your evolving leadership within the life of this church. Um, I'll give you the last word if you'd like it. Well, I, I, I guess I was a little bit of a tee up from Brandon. And, and that is to say that, you know, um, these days really require um, transparent, vulnerable leadership and that not one of us is a repository of hope. Uh, yes. we, we need each other right. desperately to give insight, wisdom, accountability, hope, and the word that I don't hear much these days is joy. Yes. Uh, it's, it's out of relationship that we will find our way. And it's not, a, it's not about one group or individual uh, over another. It's about us going hand in hand into, into an unknown future. And knowing that we're holding hands, even if it's with gloves on, um, you know, just knowing that we're holding one another's hands through this is a, a sign of hopefulness for me. Um, and that's what, I, that's what I hold on to as we uh, navigate these uncertain times. I thank you guys for the opportunity. It's been a great time to spend together and uh, love the conversation. Yeah. Thanks very much. Stay healthy. You too. <laughs> well. Thanks, Brandon. Thank you. <laughs>